You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. In Ephesians 4, 25 through 32, the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work. Do something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. This is the word of God. If you heard the parent of a two-year-old say to you, my kid is into everything, I think you'd kind of know what they mean, Uh, that they're sort of this ball of energy. Uh, Any room they go into, it's very obvious their presence is there, uh, whether you want to see it or not. But it got me thinking about the fact that in our study of Ephesians, we're coming to a section in Ephesians 4, 25 through 32, where actually Paul is going to say to us, that's what it should be when people describe you as a Christian, that that you're just into everything. In other words, that your relationship with Christ permeates all different areas of your life. It's not compartmentalized. It's not just a Sunday activity for you, but it gets its way into everywhere. But what will that actually look like? So I direct your attention to Ephesians chapter 4, and the verse that we read, 25 through 32, is where Paul gets very practical. And he says, let let me show you how your faith should spill over into all different areas of your life. And the best way to approach these verses is to see them first as a new section. And so you'll notice verse 25 begins with the word, therefore which throughout chapters 4 and 5, you see this term come off, which often indicates a new section. So we're entering a new section. That is just through verse 20 or 32. In this section, there's five exhortations, instructions, commands that Paul gives. We're going to look at those five, but keep in mind there's a pattern in those five exhortations. The pattern is that Typically, he starts with a negative command, don't don't do this. Then he follows with a positive command, and then he follows that positive command with another positive command that provides a motivation as to why this should be true in your life. Now, with saying that pattern, you're going to see there's one exception in the pattern, and it's when you get to the second exhortation, he reverses that. He begins with, a positive, and then turns to a negative command. 
But to show you what we're talking about, take a look at verse 25. Here's the first exhortation. First thing Paul says to the church in Ephesus, which is relevant to us, verse 25, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are members of one another. We are members of one body. So you can see right away the negative instruction. Put off falsehood. We saw earlier in chapter 4, verse 22, Paul used the same word to put off the old self. Uh, in other words, to, to strip away, uh, to lay it aside. So he's speaking of a change that has happened because we are followers of Jesus Christ. That we shouldn't be marked by falsehood. Uh, it may be helpful to know the word here for falsehood is the root for our English word pseudo, fake. And so Paul's saying, as, as you look, this should not be something that characterizes us in our lives, uh, that we are not truthful, uh, that we speak in error, uh, that we are deceptive in the things that we say. Paul says, Here, here's the negative command, do not do this. Put off falsehood. Here's something that we shouldn't want to see in any part of our life as followers of Christ. So his first exhortation has this negative element to it. And the exhortation is, do not speak falsely, but instead speak the truth. So let's look at the positive part of this, where he says, speak the truth to his neighbor. Now, we can think back of Christ defining neighbor as anyone that you come in contact with. But as you read Ephesians 4, you realize Paul's bringing this first home to how we should relate to one another in the body of Christ. That there should not be falsehood, and there should be speaking the truth. Now, it's interesting when you get to translating words from one language to another, sometimes it takes us a couple words in English to translate a phrase that's much briefer and sharper to the point in the original languages. This would be an example because we have speaking the truth. We've taken three words to try to translate that. It, it more accurately could just be said, truthing it. Be truthing it with one another in Christ. Because if he is the way, the truth, and the life, and we're followers of him, then it would make sense that that should characterize our interaction, our behavior, our conduct with one another in Christ. And you could take more time and notice that a lot of what Paul's saying here comes right out of the Old Testament. There's a passage in Zechariah where God says to the people of Israel, here's what I want you to do. I want you to speak the truth to your neighbor, and I want you to judge soundly. So Paul's pulling up here biblical principles that, that are unchanging. And now saying, just like that used to mark the people of God in the Old Testament, this should mark us now as the people of God in the New Testament. This is how you know your faith is spilling over into other areas of your life. Again, you could recall Christ teaching in the Sermon on the Mount where uh, he's dealing with oaths. And in one section he says, talking about oaths, and, and he lived in a day and age where the religious leaders were very good at slippery language. 
Uh, in other words, you could weasel out of promises and oaths if you just maybe made an oath based on one thing but not another. Uh, when what Jesus says in that instruction is simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. He was saying be, be truthful in what you say. You don't have to get caught up in, well, I didn't really promise I would do that. If, if you say this, you should follow through on that for your integrity, for your witness before one another in the name of Christ. So we see in this first exhortation, a, a command, not a suggestion to his audience, but, but this is how you should be. Uh, do not speak falsely. Speak the truth. And as you think about this phrase, the truth, we'll come back to this because this isn't saying speak without a filter. You know, that, that God's just kind of giving you permission. Just say whatever comes into your head. Uh, I think all of us at one point or another have seen, because we're sinful, sometimes something that we say that comes into our head is not honoring to God and is not beneficial to our brother or sister in Christ. But in thinking about this, I said that there's three parts to each exhortation. What's the reason and motivation that, that we should keep before us in this? Well, you notice he says in verse 25, for we are all members of one body. I don't think any of us would suddenly think, I'm, I'm just going to stop for a minute and just slam my hand in the door. No, that, that's a part of your body. Your whole body would reverberate with the effects of that. Well, why would we want to strive to speak the truth to one another? Because we're, we're parts of one another as fellow Christians. Each one here is a significant piece to God bringing together the body of Christ. Young, old, wherever you are. Hair, no hair. Uh, you know, you are an integral part with your gifts and abilities. So that's Paul's first exhortation. It may seem very straightforward. I mean, he's saying this to basically believers. But then he goes in verses 26 through 27 to a second exhortation. And this one is, when angry, do not sin. Now, I said he reverses the pattern here. He actually starts with a, a positive command. Some translations, if you're looking in your Bibles, NIV has, in your anger, do not sin. Other translations have, when angry, do not sin. Others say, be angry and do not sin. This is a very intriguing thought. Is, is Paul saying that positively there is a place for what we might say anger among God's people? Now, it is true that this particular word rendered angry most times in the New Testament is oriented toward the thought of either revenge or, or punishment. So it has sort of a punitive aspect to it. But at the same time, it's interesting that he says, be angry or when angry, do not sin. And I think you can build a very strong case if we're growing as Christians, should there be things that anger us? Injustice should anger us because it goes against the character of God. Uh, sin in our own life should disturb us. Uh, we should be troubled at the sin in the lives of another believer. 
or what's going on in our world. That, should, that shouldn't just leave us complacent. We shouldn't just have that thought that, well, we're, you know, we're a Christian now. We're, we're just mellow about everything. You know, we're, we're very stoic. No, we, we should be upset. We should be troubled. So Paul is reminding us in a culture, when you think about it, in Ephesus, we know you had stoic philosophy, which basically said, you know, always remain sort of emotionless in any circumstances. You had on the opposite side of that, hedonistic philosophy, pursuing pleasure. Paul's reminding us as a Christian, you're, you're, you have a balanced understanding. You don't react in an ungodly way, but you should have a reaction to anything that goes against the character of God. And Paul, you could argue, is thinking here of a number of Psalms. One in particular might be Psalm 4, where, where David is being unjustly criticized and, and attacked, and he calls out to God. He, he's troubled by this. He says to God, I am in distress. That, that sounds like a pretty strong word to say, I'm, I'm a little upset here. I'm a little ticked off. I don't know what to do. So I think we want to have that right attitude that we should react to sin. That, that's a mark of spiritual growth. Many of you probably can think right off the top of your head, Jesus, when he turned those tables in the temple. He wasn't saying, I'll help you guys clean up. He was like, this is unheard of. This is wrong. But we often know that our problem is for us as sinners, it is so difficult to be angry and upset for the right reasons. To not be angry just because we feel we've been personally assaulted or this didn't go our way. And so you notice the, the negative command there, in a sense, is twofold in verse 26. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. And then it goes on and says in verse 27, and do not give the devil a foothold. So let's kind of take a look at each of, each of those particular commands. Uh, to not let the sun go down on your wrath does not necessarily mean uh, don't go to bed unless you've worked this out. Uh, I was reading someone where many times married couples kind of say, well, that's what we should do. You know, make sure we work it out before you go to sleep. Now, there can be a benefit to that in a certain level. But some of you know, if, if you tried to do that, uh, my wife and I have been married 40 years without an argument. Uh, when, when you try to do that, when, when you're tired and the other person is tired, is it that productive no, I, I think the point here is you, you want to strive to resolve things as quickly as possible in the right spirit. Not necessarily it has to happen within a 24-hour period, but, but you are working at trying to resolve it, to bring that matter to a point of resolution. But you notice as well it mentions there that the reminder, do not be angry in this matter, do not seek to engage in wrongdoing in return. Believers need that reminder. Because there are times when we might say on a, a one perspective, someone has really offended you. 
they, they have done something that's wrong. They've said something that's not godly. Um, and, and you're upset and you're bothered. And you may even feel like I'm justified to say something. Well, you might be, but you also maybe aren't. And I think you see in this admonition to, you know, not be angry and sin not is this reminder. If we find it's more retaliatory, we, we want to see that person pay. We're, we're wishing something but that God would just judge them when we're not saying, God, do you need to judge me first, my attitude? That that should give us some checks and balances. And it's that 27th verse that provides maybe the motivation here too. Do not give the devil a stronghold. Here's your motivation. That, that little emotion, if left unchecked, and if left to take root, is all the enemy needs to begin to pull you away from the Lord. Now, I don't believe Paul is in any way implying here, you know, you could lose your salvation. But what he's saying is you could give this situation, it's, it's a stronghold. Satan can, can kind of start getting some territory in your life. Because it, it, it's fascinating that the word Satan, we think of often as simply the accuser, which is what that title emphasizes. But, but the title and word itself speaks of uh, sort of one who, who divides and splits. Haven't we probably sadly seen churches split and destroyed over anger that gets in? Maybe over a situation that on its surface we'd be like, well, that's not that big a deal. But if it's not resolved, if it's not handled correctly, and then personalities and other factors enter in, that becomes an issue that divides. And so Paul in this second admonition, which is when angry, do not sin, gives us motivation for why we should take that seriously. Do you really want to give Satan more territory than he, we already struggle with at times in Christ? So let me direct you now to verse 28. Verse 28, it says, He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. So the third exhortation is do not steal. And on the positive side, work providing for the needs of others. Now, I don't know if you think about this, but if he's writing this primarily to a church, how is it possible that stealing was a problem in the church? I mean, doesn't that strike you as a little odd? But it might be helpful to realize when you read sometimes outside sources, you find out that for many believers, uh, economic factors with maybe due to persecution um, made life very difficult for them. Most of the Jews living in the first century probably lived at a very low income to poverty type level. That's the majority. So imagine Paul saying, here you are a Christian. Uh, maybe you've lost your job. Maybe it's hard to find work. And perhaps you start to think, God would understand. 
you know, I have, I have needs. So, you know, and, and if I'm stealing from someone who's not a Christian, well, you know, they're not a Christian. And, and God's going to judge them. So maybe he's going to use this in their life. Uh, you have no social net. You can kind of run with the rationalization that might kind of make it sound like this is okay. Uh, if you want to test this out, try asking a group of coworkers, um, is it wrong to steal? And you'll probably get most people saying, well, it, it depends. Because many people have this, this relativistic kind of um, determination that things all depend on circumstances. So if you're stealing from your insurance company because you get an overestimate on how car pairs work, that's okay because they're a big company. You know, you're not really stealing from an individual. And everyone knows your premiums are high anyway. So you're kind of getting what, some back. That's a rationalization. So I think to realize, wow, this was a real problem for some of the believers. They were guilty of stealing. And I don't think he meant here they're just stealing from God. But, but by their activity, they're affecting the body of Christ. So he offers a positive exhortation. Instead of stealing, you need to work. Do something useful. And what he's saying to them is, you have a responsibility to honor God by working. That this is not a part of the curse. That this is part of the way which God has designed us for meaning and significance in our life. And when we do that in service to him, that elevates work to the position it was given for. But you notice in this, it says you must work. It's a very strong word. It means I, I want you to labor to the point of exhaustion. So maybe some of these believers were kind of saying, well, you know, isn't this what the church is about? I don't have a job, so, so everybody should support me. I'm just kind of helping the church be the church. But that was an abuse here because it's not saying they were unable to work, but the implication is they chose not to be diligent and work. Because we do know there are exceptions. People have physical limitabilities, other things that would certainly not be a command that God would put on them if they are not able physically to do that. But that's not the case here. And so you see the positive exhortation then is they must work to the point of exhaustion and do something that is useful, that's good, that is beneficial. And the motivation is in that very same verse, in verse 28, you notice the motivation is at the end there, um, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may, or excuse me, verse 28, um, that you may have something to share with those in need. In other words, here is a way you contribute to the needs of your brothers and sisters in Christ. I think if I were to ask most of you who aren't retired, um, would you like to retire? It would be nice just to not have to get up tomorrow morning, go to work. Now, you might say, well, I can't do that. I have bills. I have everything else. That is true. But have you ever thought the other reason it would be sinful is you would no longer be able to maybe minister to your brothers and sisters in Christ as you can now because you're working. 
because maybe financially you are able to help support the church. You are able to help meet physical needs of others. This kind of takes the spotlight off maybe some of these Christians who are stealing, thinking, well, I'm a victim of my circumstances. And Paul's saying, that's the wrong mentality to have as a Christian. You should be looking for ways to how you can minister to your brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul says it again in a letter to Timothy. When you think about this, Timothy's the pastor of the church in Ephesus. So he writes a letter to Timothy after this, which is to the church at Ephesus, and he tells Timothy, you make sure you tell people that if they don't provide for their families, they're worse than an unbeliever. That's, that's a pretty strong statement. Paul's saying, this is how seriously I take this exhortation, that, that you look for ways to address the needs of one another in the body of Christ. We have two exhortations left. The fourth one, verses 29 through 30. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So his fourth exhortation, if I can put it this way, is, is do not trash talk but build others up with your words. We, we live in an age of, of trash talking. Not, not just among professional athletes who kind of, some of them have turned it into an art, uh, but, but even in our worlds, we, we tend to be very critical people. I was listening to one person who recently said, with, with the younger generation going up, they have no answers. All they can do is ask questions. Like they tend to be more critical but nothing to offer in exchange. So Paul here says the negative instruction, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. And I think we're all acutely aware of just how, how powerful and destructive words can be. And, and this word unwholesome refers to something that is rotting or spoiled or decaying. Jesus used it when he said, you're going to know a, a teacher by their good fruit or their bad fruit. The word bad is the same word, unwholesome. So did you ever think about what's coming out of your mouth and the thought of what, what does that smell like to God? My words. Are, are they more words of, of rotting and, and unwholesomeness, gossip? Paul's saying that that's not what should mark us. That's not what it means to have your faith get into everything in your life. But then he gives the positive instruction. Instead of that, your words should be helpful for building up one another. And, and we want to think of helpful here in terms of promoting the spiritual growth and development of your brothers and sisters in Christ. This does not mean your words always just should be pleasant, should be just compliments you give to one another. Uh, we're reminded there are times that in love, in speaking the truth in love, you have to say something very difficult to a brother or sister in Christ. You have to follow what Proverbs talks about, that the, the wounds of a friend 
can be trusted. In other words, there's times we need to say something in love to another Christian that, that doesn't sound like encouragement, but is convicting, is intended to hopefully bring about growth and development. So you don't want to misread this and think, all right, well, Paul's just saying, always say encouraging things. So another Christian comes to you and says, I'm kind of concerned about this in your life. And you pull out Ephesians 4, 29 and say, don't go there. It's not encouraging. Uh, no, that's not what Paul's saying. It, it's for your benefit, for all of our benefits sometimes, to hear something we, we really don't want to hear, but we need to. And I think many of us have experienced that maybe through our spouse, maybe through another family member who loves us, is concerned for us. So, so we kind of get that part. It's just a lot harder to apply it. But you look at verse 30 and you have the motivation for this, which tells you none of these exhortations you can do in your own strength. And the motivation is, do you realize that when you don't do this, you are grieving the Holy Spirit? Not, not that you're losing the Holy Spirit, but, but that you are grieving the Spirit whose job it is in your life to bring conviction, to, to enable you to listen to godly counsel and instruction. That, that's your motivation. Think how serious this is. And again, he's talking to Christians. He's saying, you're a Christian, you're a follower of Christ. If, if this characterizes your speech, then, then you're grieving the Holy Spirit. And I think by that very strong word, what he's saying is you, you are not listening to what I've given the Spirit to do, to convict you and guide you into all truth. Some of you know a, a term that's been out for a little bit, uh, a while, is called ghosting. It's where you kind of just act like someone's not there. Uh, I think that's kind of what Paul's saying. You, you sort of ghost the Holy Spirit. You, you, you neglect. You don't think about his presence in your life. You don't rely upon his leading and, and bring you into the word and convicting you. And the motivation that he puts on top of that is you've been sealed, you've been marked as belonging to him. And then he mentions the day of redemption. In other words, if, if you're a Christian, what's going to happen on that day of redemption when Christ returns? Yeah, you, you'll be caught up into heaven. That's great. You'll spend eternity with Christ. But will there also be an accounting? Will, will we have to stand before Christ as he assesses the rewards that we will receive? where we will give an account for our words. Were they unwholesome? Or were they words that built up and strengthened others? Well, verses 31 and 32, we get to the fifth and final exhortation. Simply put, do not imitate the world, but reflect the character of Christ. And you see this in the things that are mentioned. Do not imitate the world, but reflect the character of Christ. Negative command, get rid of the following. Not, not tolerate these. Not kind of look at them and say, well, I'm not as bad as this other person. Uh, get rid of them. Ask God to root them out, which is a process, a lifelong process. 
But I want to just touch on a couple of these. Bitterness deals often with one's attitude. And so Paul's kind of addressing this from different levels to maybe remind us how deep these things go, even for Christian. So he speaks of get rid of bitterness, get rid of rage, which kind of mentions one's disposition. Then he adds to that brawling and slander, loud, aggressive speech. He's not saying it's wrong to raise your voice, but, but he's obviously getting at this sense in which sometimes as you talk to one another, it does not display the love of Christ. And then he mentions get rid of malice. Malice is, is all about actions, the intent to injure someone. That could be physically, that could be with our words. But he simply is saying these characteristics don't belong in one who is really growing in Christ. They, they should be diminishing in your life, not, not increasing. The positive command is simply be kind, compassionate, and forgiving. When you think of the word kind, it, it points to restraint. It's actually used of God's response to Israel when they keep sinning and he continues to love them. He demonstrates restraint. Now, they still have consequences, but he restrains himself. Are we a people as Christians? Do we display restraint in our relationships with one another? And then he mentions compassion. Uh, compassion, we kind of associate with love, and it is love, but maybe to give you an idea, uh, Hippocrates, as you think of medical science and things, used the word compassion to mean literally healthy bowels. In other words, your intestines and everything were functioning as they should. And I think that's what Paul's getting at. The body of Christ should function as God designed it to. And that is that we are a people of compassion. Compassion for one another. Compassion for those who don't know Christ. And then he ends by, again, referring to forgiving. That, that you are gracious towards one another. And I think the word gracious may better capture the thought, we display favor when it's not deserved. Because all of us can love someone who we get along with, who we feel encourages us, helps us. What about the people where sometimes it's, it's difficult? Maybe in the body of Christ. Not every Sunday is Pastor Appreciation Sunday. So it's a difficult thing many times for us. And isn't that where it needs to start to permeate? And the motivation is remember what Christ has done for you. It's almost as if Paul says, I, I can't go any higher than simply this. Remember what Christ has done for you. So maybe the next time that you're feeling like I don't really want to serve this other person, in my church. I don't want to extend myself. Stop and think, all right, well, what has Christ done for you? So maybe the next time you hear a parent of a two-year-old say, my, my kid's into everything. Or the phrase that some of us use, wash up for supper. It might remind us of what God expects of us who are his children. 
that our faith would permeate everything. And I think as we move into the Lord's Supper, that we don't come to the Lord's Supper as perfect people. We come acknowledging our sin, but we come also desiring to, to put that off. And in Christ's strength, to model these exhortations. So let me pray with you before we wash up for the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, we desire to continue in worship. And nowhere is there more a physical reminder to us of Christ's death and resurrection than the Lord's Supper. Uh, an opportunity for us to examine ourselves before you, uh, to ask that question, is our faith evident in our lives? And then to plead with you to make that change in us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.